This is the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, a land of song and laughter. Mmm, coconut milk, a delicious Puerto Rican rum. This is really living. Puerto Rico is facing a $70 billion public debt amid a 10-year economic crisis. The poverty rate is a staggering 45%. Last year alone, over 80,000 people left for the mainland U.S. Puerto Rico has already shut down more than 150 schools in the last few years. Puerto Rico's debt problem has gotten so dire, the power authority cut off the hospital that's behind on its bill. The electric power authority did at least wait until surgeries were done for the day today before pulling the plug. This is nothing short of Wall Street abuse and tactical steps towards extermination. Hello everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of this Energy of Empire series. Today we'll be moving west of Cuba to look at the US invasion and occupation of the islands of Puerto Rico. After 120 years of this occupation, how have the 3.5 million residents of this tropical paradise ended up on the hook for $72 billion? To understand, we'll have to go back to 1898. Do not make peace until we get Puerto Rico. That's what Theodore Roosevelt wrote to his partner in imperial crime, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, as Roosevelt was preparing to personally invade Cuba. Puerto Rico is not forgotten, and we mean to have it, Lodge replied. And have it they did. After occupying Cuba and destroying the Spanish Navy, a force of 16,000 American soldiers landed on July 25, 1898. The United States took formal possession of the islands during the peace negotiations with Spain later that summer. Unlike Cuba, Puerto Rico had no congressional protection from annexation and therefore could become a territory of the United States. Belonging to, but not a part of, is how it was described. Spain had already granted Puerto Rico a charter of autonomy the previous year, so the justification for invading Cuba aiding a war of independence against brutal occupiers, did not apply. The US invasion came just eight days after the first elected government began to function. In other words, Puerto Rico has enjoyed exactly eight days of independence in the past 500 years. The motivations for this conquest were commercial, imperial and geostrategic. Commercially, Puerto Rico had wealthy sugar-growing lands and later became an offshore tax haven. Imperialistically, Roosevelt and Lodge most likely wanted them just because they were there, and geostrategically, the islands are the most westerly substantial landmass in the Americas, hence why Columbus bumped into them 400 years earlier. They are exactly the islands you would want to own if you had further imperialistic ambitions in Central and South America. Indeed, Puerto Rico was pivotal in future US invasions of the Dominican Republic and Panama. The island's fortunes went from bad to worse as one of the most devastating hurricanes in recorded history landed in 1899, killing three and a half thousand people and destroying the entire coffee crop. Incidentally, the word hurricane comes to English via Spanish from the indigenous Arawak people of the Caribbean. The Spanish needed a new word to describe storms of such intensity. The United States replaced the Spanish peso with the US dollar. However, in spite of their equal value, would only exchange each peso for 60 cents, a 40% currency devaluation. This forced farmers into debt, allowing American banks to foreclose and take ownership of their land. 
Over the ensuing decades, a small number of mostly US-owned corporations took over the majority of arable land, with 50% being owned by just four corporations. By some estimations, Puerto Ricans earned just half of what they had done under the Spanish. To give a sense of the revolving door at play, Puerto Rico's first civilian governor, Charles Herbert Allen, went on to become president of the American Sugar Refining Company, one of the major players on the islands. Puerto Ricans rejected offers of US citizenship until it was imposed upon them in 1917. Now if you pause and think for a minute, what else happened in 1917 that might be related to this? Unfortunately, yes, you've got it right. Woodrow Wilson granted citizenship to the Puerto Ricans in order to be able to conscript them into fighting his war in Europe. This gives lie to the idea that the United States abolished slavery in 1865. If you have trouble with this, imagine the Roman Empire marching into a territory uninvited, declaring the people there to be pseudo-Romans, citizens of the empire, and then conscripting them at gun, or gladio, point, to fight in a far-off war. Would anyone doubt these people had been taken as slaves? Over the ensuing decades, Puerto Ricans were further drafted into World War II and the Korean and Vietnamese wars. To resist this takeover of the islands, a nationalist movement spearheaded by Pedro Albizu Campos came about in the 1930s. Through studying at Harvard University, Campos came into contact with the Indian and Irish independence movements. He actually met Eamon de Valera and was consulted over the drafting of the constitution of the Irish Free State. This, in combination with the racist treatment he received in the military, turned him into an advocate for Puerto Rican independence. Now, this is quite incredible. Campos created a series of bonds that were registered on Wall Street. These bonds were an investment in the Republic of Puerto Rico, redeemable from the island's treasury on the day it became independent. In 1933, Campos led a strike against the railway and power companies in protest of monopolistic practices. The following year, an island-wide strike of agricultural workers extracted wage concessions from the sugar syndicates. This is the first time Puerto Ricans experienced victory over the United States. More were to come. After this, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI employed its illegal counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, to disrupt the independence movement. Campos began receiving death threats and having shots fired at his home. A series of massacres and executions took place during the mid-30s, as well as retaliatory killings of police. This led US Congressman Vito Marcantonio to denounce the American governor, Blanton Winship, saying, In his five years as governor of Puerto Rico, Mr. Blanton Winship destroyed the last vestige of civil rights. Patriots were framed in the very executive mansion and railroaded to prison. Men, women and children were massacred in the streets of the island simply because they dared to express their opinion or attempted to meet in free assemblage. In 1936, a federal grand jury submitted an indictment against Abizu Campos and eight other men. They were charged with sedition and other violations of federal law prescribing subversive activities and accused of attempting to overthrow the government of the United States. They were actually acquitted at trial but the judge did not approve and ordered a retrial where convictions were obtained through a stacked jury. Campos would end up spending 25 of his remaining 29 years behind bars and seems to have been tortured in human radiation experiments. He commented on his arrest that The Americans knew what they were doing. They needed me off the island right away. Six more months in 1936 and we'd have gotten our independence. 
1948, the Puerto Rican Senate passed a gag law. This was actually timed to coincide with one of Campos's releases from prison. The law made it illegal to own a Puerto Rican flag. They couldn't be displayed anywhere, not even in a person's own home. It limited speech against the United States government or in favour of Puerto Rican independence, as well as organising along those lines. The penalty for disobedience was anything up to 10 years imprisonment and a $10,000 fine. This is open fascism inside a United States territory, aimed at the people who have recently been conscripted to fight against fascists in Europe. The 1950s saw substantial uprisings, with gunfights breaking out, police stations being burned down, and even assassination attempts against President Harry Truman. The United States declared martial law and 3,000 Puerto Ricans were arrested. The last major attempt by the Puerto Rican nationalists to draw world attention to the colonial situation occurred in 1954. Nationalists attacked the United States Capitol building, wounding five representatives. It actually surprises me we've not heard more about this since the January 6th insurrection of 2020. Puerto Rico became a tax haven for US corporations. The idea, at least on paper, was to attract inward investment with temporary tax breaks. Due to loopholes, such as companies being able to dissolve and reform under a different name, many ended up just never paying tax over a period of decades. This transition away from a sugar-based economy meant that less Puerto Ricans were needed, and a sterilization program was pushed that at its peak saw one-third of the women of childbearing age sterilized. A smaller percentage of men were too. This campaign ran on into the 1970s, and while some women might have chosen it as a form of contraception after already having children, it is also clear that it was carried out in a deceptive and coercive manner. And so we arrive in the present day, where Puerto Rico's poverty rate is double that of the poorest US state, and it is unable to pay for its public services. The small island of Vieques was used as a target range by the US Air Force from the 1940s onwards. Over a trillion pounds of explosives were dropped, with the chemicals they released being the most likely reason why Vieques has a 30% higher cancer rate than the rest of Puerto Rico. A separatist group in the 1980s actually managed to destroy 11 US fighter planes, causing $40 million of damage. This is one area where the Puerto Rican people did win a victory over their imperial occupiers, however. Anger was focused by the accidental killing of a local security guard during an Air Force exercise, and the people led a campaign that forced bombing to stop. To explain this, I'll hand over to Robert Rabin of the Committee for the Rescue and Development of Vieques, as he tells the story so much better than I could. That death shook everybody into action like no other event had ever done, in Vieques and throughout Puerto Rico. Almost immediately we occupied the Navy's bombing range, literally. Uh, over, over a couple of months, you know, thousands of people were in there. Fifteen encampments, uh, you know, rung the eastern end of Vieques, the Navy couldn't bomb. For a year we controlled that space. Finally, in May 4, 2000, the Navy came in, arrested about 250 of us, and, and took back their bombing range and started bombing again. And then we began the second phase of civil disobedience to stop the bombing. And in that phase, over 1,500 people were arrested. We had brought in a lot of, uh, you know, high-profile people. Bobby Kennedy Jr. was arrested with us. Reverend Al Sharpton was arrested <laughs> with us. Uh, Jesse Jackson, wife Jacqueline. Yeah. Um, 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 uh, Edward James Almost, the actor, was arrested with us, several Congress people, lots of ministers, priests, pastors arrested with us. The bishops of every church in Puerto Rico, every single one, created the Ecumenical Council for Peace on Vieques. 
union group, student groups, women's group, environmental group, cultural group, singer, songwriters, theater people, everybody got together. And, and then, you know, the Puerto Rican diaspora, right? Millions of Puerto Ricans in New York. So, you know, one, Tito Kayak, a guy from Puerto Rico, got up on the Statue of Liberty, got out onto the crown, hung a big flag that said, stop bombing Vieques. And he spent a year in prison for that. Other people jumped into Yankee Stadium in the middle of the game with flags, stop the bombing. Um, so it was a big, big to-do. And we finally, you know, got this to be the biggest political issue for Puerto Rican and Latino voters in the U.S. The politicians wanted their votes because it's more money for them and their families and more stuff they can steal and more, you know, it's more power for them. So they eventually were forced to do the right thing so that they could have more money and more power and better mansions and stuff for their kids and grandchildren. <laughs> and, and, they, and it worked. And, and it worked. And um, so without firing a single shot, this small community uh, defeated the most powerful military force in the history of humanity. Because people were willing to sacrifice. Women, older women, younger women, kids, you know, university students and others, at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, went out in fishing boats, jumped to the water, got to the, the, the bombing range, to be there when, when day would come, light would come, and shoot up a flare so the Navy would have to hold off their bombing, go down and arrest people. Very dangerous. I, mean, I, I was arrested. My, my third arrest was in the bombing range as well. And, uh, you know, they started, they were bombing away. I mean, they were lobbing these uh, uh, five-inch rounds over our heads. And, and we were, you know, I was kind of freaking out. Uh, but a lot of people uh, put their lives on the line and their liberty as well. And over 1,500 people arrested. Many people spent, you know, days or weeks or months in jail. Uh, I think uh, I did my six months in the federal prison in San Juan. So it was a big, you know, a lot of people made these important sacrifices. And, and the Navy had no weapon against the love that people feel for Vieques. And that this really powerful spirit of solidarity that runs through the Puerto Rican nation and that rings Vieques and, and Culebra as well. Uh, so, and the end. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I've mostly drawn on the books War Against All Puerto Ricans by Nelson Dennis and Fantasy Island by Ed Morales. I would also recommend the documentary America's Backyard, Puerto Rico. Next time, we'll be moving over to the Pacific Ocean to look at the US invasion of Guam and the major war in the Philippines.